Hello and welcome to episode 374 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for joining me for today's story, which comes from South Wales and was written by my good friend Chris Wood. If you haven't done so yet, please do buy his excellent second book, Death in the Theatre. The link is in the show notes. There are no ads this week, so let's zip straight on to our guest of the month and year game to set some context for today's story. Top of the UK music charts was the Rednecks with Cotton Eyed Joe. Remember that one? It must have been someone's first dance at a wedding once, right? Maybe. And in the US, it was Brian Adams with Have You Ever Loved a Woman? And in Australia, their top album this year was the late great Coolio with Gangster's Paradise. A real mix of styles this week. In the news this month, the legendary Gary Larson produced the last ever Far Side cartoon. Newt Gingrich became Speaker of the US House of Representatives. Eric Cantona, never heard of him, assaulted a spectator after being sent off while playing for Manchester United against Crystal Palace. Comedian and game show host Larry Grayson died, as did satirist, writer and comedian Peter Cook. The top grossing film in the UK this month was Legends of the Fall. Nope, me neither. So did you guess the month and year? It was January 1995. Oh well, there's always next week. Today's story comes from one of my favourite cities, Cardiff. St Melons on Cardiff's outskirts was developed in the 1980s with a housing estate housing around 4,000 people. In January 1995, 15-year-old Claire Hood lived in this part of Cardiff. Her parents separated, so she lived in an end-of-terrace property in St Melons with her mum Pam and her younger sister Claire. Claire was in her fourth year at the Rumney High School, Cardiff, which has now closed. It closed in 2014. When she was there, Claire was a fairly frequent truant from school. She didn't particularly enjoy it. Claire's mum Pam worked shifts, and would on occasion return home from work to find Claire still in bed when she should have been at school. Wednesday the 18th of January was such a day, and it was just before 1pm that Claire eventually left the house to walk to Rumney High to catch the remainder of the school day. It may be though that Claire told her mum that she was going to school simply to make her happy, as Claire was seen walking past shops on the estate, walking in the other direction from her school. Certainly by 1.25pm, Claire had not made it to school as she was spotted in nearby Bethenia Row, which is close to a local area named Cathcob Woods, a popular recreation and dog walking area, and a place that when truanting from school, Claire and her friends would often go to. Only a few nights previously, Claire and some friends had been in the woods when they were alarmed to see a man suddenly appear from behind some hedgerows before he quickly darted off again into the night. Certainly on Wednesday the 18th of January, someone had been in those woods, as just before 4pm, a woman who was travelling home from work had to brake in her car, as a man ran out in front of her, having come from that direction of Cathcob Woods. So there wouldn't have been anything particularly untoward in this instance in isolation, but only later in our story would it be considered significant. Just before 7pm that night, Pam returned to the house expecting to find her daughter Claire at home. She called upstairs, there was no reply. So Pam went upstairs hoping to find her daughter asleep, but the room was empty. 
Regardless, it was relatively early, although it was a dark winter's evening. Pam knew that her daughter not being home was very much out of character, and Claire would always tell her mum if for any reason she was not going to be home. Remember, these are the days for mobile phones. Pam began an increasingly panicked yet hopeful call around of all Claire's friends. But with no positive news following each call, Pam's concern continued to increase. What the phone calls did manage to establish was that Claire definitely hadn't been at school that day as her friends confirmed she'd not been in any of her classes. It was 8pm an hour later that Pam called the South Wales Police before starting her own search with family and friends. This was particularly focused on the area between her home and Rumney High. This mid-January evening was an immensely cold one and with the time well beyond midnight and no sign of Claire, Pam was eventually persuaded to go home and get some rest. This of course, people mean it well, but it would be much, much easier said than done and Pam endured just the worst possible night, unable to sleep, listening for any noise, waiting for the doorbell and paralysed with panic. The following day, the search resumed until just before midday, when a 14-year-old cyclist made a terrible discovery. She had found the partially clothed body of Claire Hood beside a path in Calf Cobb Woods. One of her feet was draped in a shallow stream and the other tangled in branches. Detectives were very quick to announce their initial suspicions that Claire's death may be linked to another attack on a girl, also from Romney High just a week previously. In that particular instance, a 13-year-old girl was beaten about the head with a length of wood, only for her assailant to run off following her screams for help. The head teacher at Romney High declared that all pupils would be confined indoors during lunch times as tension and fears in the local area escalated. In those crucial early days following the discovery of Claire's body, the police received well over 200 calls from people who thought they may be able to help with the inquiry. Indeed, the very day after Claire was found, one man in particular called police, claiming to know the identity of Claire's killer. He quickly hung up and police were desperate for him to call back. Detective Superintendent Colin Jones, who led the murder inquiry, made a public appeal for the man to call them again, saying, We urge you to contact us again, and you can be sure we will speak to you in complete confidence. Claire's mum, Pam, also issued a public appeal, but this was a very different one. It was a highly emotionally charged affair when she said, If anyone is guarding him, the killer, they should stop and think what he has done to my beautiful daughter. Any mother who suspects her son, any wife who suspects her husband, or any girl who suspects her boyfriend should ring the police immediately. I appeal to them, woman to woman, not to protect this evil man. Speaking about her daughter to the local press, Pam described Claire as a quiet girl, but she had so many friends and she was always very happy. Claire was not just a daughter, she was a friend. It was like talking with a young woman with her, we could share each other's problems. Claire's younger sister, Sarah, was only 12 when her sister was so cruelly taken. She was sleeping in Claire's bed in vain efforts to remain close to her. And despite her young age, she tried her hardest to be brave for her mum, trying to make her smile and take her mind away from the darkest of places where she found herself. 
Sometimes she succeeded, but very quickly the grief and the tears would return to her mum's eyes. It was a little over a week after Claire's murder that her mum was able to see Claire again. But this time it was in the most dire of circumstances, as Claire lay in the mortuary of Cardiff's University Hospital. Until we find out who did this, we can never rest, Claire's mum said. Please give me back my daughter so I can bury her in peace. The police were delighted with the response from the public and in particular local residents, who were only too happy to aid their efforts. Hundreds of shoppers were quizzed by detectives at a local supermarket just yards from where it was thought Claire had been taken. School friends, despite being stunned for life by what had happened, they managed to collect several hundred pounds and came up with plans to erect a plaque in their friend's memory in the local community centre where Claire had attended the youth club. Churchgoers on the estate did their bit also, praying constantly for the teenager's grieving family at specially arranged services. In other efforts to capture Claire's killer, detectives took the approach to appeal to the nation as a whole by broadcasting reconstruction on the BBC show Crime Watch. Eliminating potential suspects is almost as important as finding the killer. And in this case, two men with rifles have been spotted in the woods near to Claire's home. But following appeals, the two men came forward and were discarded as suspects and not treated as being suspicious. One really brave act, I think, in the effort to find the killer was from Claire's best friend, Kelly. Surrounded by TV film crews and press photographers, in the pouring rain, she retraced the last known steps of her best friend. It's difficult, isn't it, to imagine just how hard that would be for anyone? But for a young teenage girl to do it in such harrowing circumstances must have been just an awful experience. So at this stage, detectives were sure that Claire had indeed been truanting from school and they made pleas for any other children who'd been doing similar on that day to come forward in case they had any information. Detective Superintendent Colin Jones reassured any possible truants they wouldn't be in any trouble for this and it was only Claire's murder they held any interest in. That's all they wanted to know. They believed that the murder most likely had a sexual motive attached to it, something that was finally confirmed in the February, a little over a month after Claire's murder, when it was revealed that she had indeed been raped prior to being killed. Just another awful blow to her friends and family, who were utterly distraught at the terror and pain she must have gone through in her final moments. But this aspect of the attack enabled police to be given the DNA profile of her attacker. Whilst any discussion of DNA and forensic profiling, for you it's now commonplace, right? But back in 1995, the world's first national DNA database had only just come into operation in April of that year, the precise time that the police were looking for the person who murdered Claire. So whilst this offered much hope, it was just still very uncertain how it might work in terms of bringing the culprit to justice. Detective Superintendent Jones was delighted with the find, but he ruled out an initial mass blood sampling exercise, at least for the moment, as they were still pursuing many positive lines of inquiry. Whilst the police buried themselves with this, Claire's mum had her own personal mission to contend with. 
After weeks of turmoil and deliberation, she decided that she needed to visit the woods that had so haunted her since she heard about her daughter meeting her violent end there. I had to go to see for myself where it happened, she said. She'd hoped to get some form of peace from her visit, but in fact it was quite the opposite. I thought it would help, but it was awful. The trees creaked. I was frightened and I just wanted to get out of there. It didn't make me feel any better. My life has changed completely in the last eight weeks. I'm living a nightmare and I know I will continue to live a nightmare. I had a letter the other day from a woman in Merseyside whose own 17-year-old daughter was murdered in similar circumstances. But her daughter was killed in 1982, 13 years ago. It suddenly dawned on me that Claire was still alive 13 weeks ago and this poor lady is still grieving after 13 years. I knew then that my nightmare will never leave me. Strong words. Another ordeal that Pam had to face was the funeral service for her daughter. On the 17th of March, Claire's friends and family said an emotional farewell at a packed funeral service at St Mellon's Baptist Church before a burial at the nearby cemetery. Around 500 people attended the emotionally charged service as Claire Hood was finally laid to rest. This was one part of the grieving process which of course had to be addressed, but the task of achieving justice and true peace for Claire was still to be realised. Those at the funeral could never have known that this was about to change of a bizarre twist of events. As I mentioned earlier, police had been able to obtain a DNA profile of the culprit, but they had initially delayed plans to initiate a mass blood sampling programme. They reversed this decision, however, when other lines of inquiry had failed to deliver. So it was then that South Wales Police began a campaign where they hoped to take blood samples from more than 2,000 youths and men. On the 3rd of April, the Cardiff-based World Featherweight Boxing Champion, Steve Robinson, volunteered the first blood sample. I'm very glad to do anything which could help catch the person responsible, he said. Police, of course, hoped that every male on their database would be as compliant as this. It was the intention of the police to knock on the doors of all the male residents in the St Melons neighbourhood. They'll be invited to the police station to donate small amounts of blood, which will be sent off to a lab for DNA analysis. The population of St Melons was told in no uncertain terms that anyone who declined this invitation would risk attaching attention to themselves as a possible suspect in Claire's murder. 48 officers were assigned to the task. Detective Superintendent Jones warned that if somebody failed to show up, they would quickly be asking who the person was. Where does he live? Does he live at the edge of the woods? Does he walk his dog there? We will have great interest in this person, he said. The police were nearly certain the attacker was a local man, not a stranger passing through. So focusing these huge resources on the immediate locality was something they absolutely thought and hoped would help them catch their man. The police were able to offer a huge incentive at the time for information when they revealed details of a £100,000 reward for any information which led to a conviction. This cash was underwritten anonymously by a number of local national companies who were so shocked and appalled by the brutal murder. 
If anyone had been too frightened to volunteer any information, it was hoped that this financial incentive might just tempt them into reversing this fear and coming forward to help the police. But still the vital lead didn't come and time raced on. But of course locals talked and rumours spread about who was responsible. On Monday the 29th of July 1996, a full year after Claire's murder, detectives were forced to issue a plea for calm in the St Mellon's community. A brick was thrown through a window of a suspect's home on the estate and the house then required guarding from the police. Whilst this was obviously something the police could not condone, it certainly showed that the strength of feeling and anger had not diminished at all, despite a year having passed since the murder. The house that had been targeted was just a few streets from Claire's home, and it belonged to Maureen Owen. Detectives called to the house to ask to take a DNA sample from one of Maureen's sons as he was Claire's age. This wasn't a problem, and the sample was duly taken. Whilst detectives were in the house, Maureen rather helpfully asked, I've got two other sons. Why don't you test them as well? As we've heard, the local community were all keen to catch Claire's killer, but this innocuous action was the golden piece of luck they'd been seeking. One of the sons, Neil Owen, did as he was asked and provided a sample of his saliva. Nobody in the living room that day would, at that stage, understand the implications this would have on the investigation. Nobody that was, besides Neil Owen. The 19-year-old was too panic-stricken to object. How could he? To the saliva swab following his mum volunteering him. And his officers left the house. He knew it would just be a matter of time before the secret he'd hidden for over a year would be unearthed. When these samples made their way to a lab in Chepstow, the breakthrough everyone had yearned for was finally made. The sample that Neil Owen had provided confirmed a positive match to the profile recovered from the murder scene. And all this from a sample the police had not even intended to take and never have done so, but for the inadvertent request from his own mum. Two months on from their initial meeting with Neil Owen, police returned to the house in St Melons, where this time there was no element of surprise to stun him. As Neil Owen opened the door to the police, he simply told them, I've been waiting for you to come. Owen was a computer student at Cardiff College and was generally viewed as a bit of a loner. Following his arrest, he was summoned to appear at Cardiff Magistrates Court where he was remanded in custody. Despite the forensic evidence against him, he pleaded not guilty to the charges of rape and the murder of Claire, thus instigating a trial to be held at Cardiff Crown Court which began in November 1996. Neil Owen was now 20 years old. The prosecutor, John Charles Reese QC, laid out before the court the facts as he saw them and described how Claire had met her death. He said that Neil Owen had grabbed Claire from a woodland bridge, dragging her into undergrowth before he raped and killed her. He then dumped her body on the banks of a stream in Cathcob Wood. Reese said that Owen didn't like living on the St Melon's estate and he'd very few friends. He was someone that was never seen with a girl, whether it be a girlfriend or even in the company of girls. His route to college, though, took him past Claire's house, so consequently they knew each other by sight 
But that was as far as it went from Claire's point of view. On occasions, he passed her in the street, and when he did so, there was never any conversation, not even a casual hiya or an all right. QC Reese described how Owen would sometimes stare at Claire and her friend, whereas other times he would completely ignore them and walk past them with his head down. This was in total contrast to how Neil Owen described his relationship with Claire. He told the court he had in fact had a secret relationship with her, starting three months before her body had been found. The court heard a host of taped interviews with Owen, which had been conducted with police at Romney Police Station on the day of his arrest. He claimed in the tapes, I used to see her quite regularly. She missed a lot of school and I'd see her when she was skiving off. He claimed their relationship had blossomed from the moment that Clara broken up with an unnamed boyfriend. He said that things became more intimate between the pair and this led to arguments between them as, according to Owen, he did not want to become a father. The fact that his DNA was discovered at the scene of the murder was dismissed by him claiming that on the day that she was killed they had consensual sex together in the woods and following this, somebody else must have come along and killed her. The mystery person again. We hear about it so much on this podcast. But this parallel thinking which Owen either believed internally or it just made up as an alibi was at every turn quashed by the prosecution. Rather than a relationship forming, the court heard how instead Owen had turned into a peeping Tom who would try and catch a glimpse of Claire in her bedroom. And Claire's mum Pam had never even heard the name Neil Owen. And as we've heard, the mum and daughter, they were very close and Claire told her mum everything. And yet she'd never come across the name of the man now standing trial for her daughter's murder. During the trial, Owen's brother David told the jury that his brother had joked to him that he'd killed her. David Owen, who was 18, claimed that the confession was something he didn't take seriously, but he'd made the admission whilst the pair watched a TV programme about the murder. Neil turned to me and said, I did it. I thought he was saying it as a joke, so I said, no, I did it. And Neil turned to me and said, no, seriously, it was me. David Owen went on to say that since his brother's sample had been taken, everything had changed between them. From that moment, Neil and I were rowing more and more, he told the court. With the forensic evidence so important, the court listened intently when forensic scientist Andrew Parry took to the stand. He said that the DNA from Claire's body matched the DNA profile taken from Owen, and that he would expect this profile to occur in 1 in 160 million individuals. On Tuesday the 17th of December, Cardiff Crown Court prepared itself to receive the verdict from the jury following the five-week trial. Prosecuting QC Reese asked the jury to consider that Neil Owen's story was the lie of a desperate, devious young man to avoid the responsibility for the wicked crimes he committed towards Claire. Her reputation, he said, like her life, counts for nothing to him. The jury took just two hours to consider the evidence and returned unanimous verdicts of guilty to charges of both rape and murder. Neil Owen remained impassive as the judge sentenced him to life for murder and ten years for rape. 
As the guilty verdicts were read, the public gallery exploded with cheers and applause, this applause ringing loudly in the killer's ears as he was taken down to the cells. Claire's mum was happy with the sentence and of course the justice for her daughter, but outside court she told reporters what she really wanted. I'm quite happy with the sentence, but I won't be happy until Owen himself is dead and in his grave. That's my verdict. The jury's verdict won't bring Claire back, but I hope it will start to give us some peace of mind. Claire's dad Kelvin expressed similar sentiments outside court. My daughter can rest now and so can I, now that he's been locked up. I've been waiting for this verdict for nearly two years. Neil Owen could have killed again, and I feel good that he's been taken off the streets. The contrast, of course, is Neil Owen's mum, Maureen. She was in tears as she left the court without any comment. In an investigation which received such wholehearted support from the local community, how absurdly ironic it should be that a woman trying her best to help with this inquiry should incriminate her own son for the murder of Claire Hood. So what do you make of what we've heard today? I can't help wondering what happened to Maureen and her family after the trial. I imagine they had to leave the area, as so many families of murderers have to. It isn't safe to stay, and although they've done nothing wrong, they are forever labelled and punished for the crimes of family members. But our focus, of course, is not on them, it's on Claire. Poor Claire, her whole life to live, then attacked and murdered at the hands of another inadequate man like Owens. She would, you imagine, have known men like this, as I would suggest most women listening to this podcast do, but not for a second thought he was anything but a bit odd, certainly not dangerous, and would barely have given him a second thought. I can't imagine how her friends and family are feeling even today or those years later. No doubt they have spent so many hours and sleepless nights desperately trying not to think of Claire's final moments but instead trying to think of all the happy times they spent together. But it's so difficult. And once again, we have the unpleasant fact that when you search for Claire's name, it's always linked to that of Owen's. And yet the two couldn't have been more different. We know what Owen is, and his future is a bleak one. But he's probably out of prison now, and at least he has a future. Something he took from Claire at just 15. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me for this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to Facebook and join over 92,000 of us as we talk UK True Crime 24-7. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime for bonus episodes and loads of other exclusive content. A huge thank you to the latest members of this community. That's Kate Smith and Michael Webb. Welcome back, Michael. Thank you both so much. Your support is much appreciated. Okay, so that's all for me for another week. If you get a chance, please do head to my YouTube channel. Just search UK True Crime Live or see any of my socials for the link. I have released on YouTube the full one-hour video of our first True Crime Podcasters Roundtable, which took place this week with me, Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, Mike from Murder Mile, Andy from Picture the Scene, and Grace from the Red Rum Podcast. 
I think it's a really interesting conversation. So while you are there, why not subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes? I'll release the audio shortly too. So until we speak again next week, keep that towel handy. Please do take it easy and remember, despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.